Hello, and welcome back to the Hope Not Hate podcast, Control-Alt-Right-Delete edition. I'm Melissa Ryan, and with me today is Mutali Unkonde. Uh, Mutali is a U.S.-based policy analyst and fellow at Data and Society, where she works at the intersection of race, technology, and policy. She's been working as a senior tech advisor for Congresswoman Yvette Clark since 2016. She was part of the team that helped introduce the Algorithmic Accountability Act into the House of Representatives in April 2019, and is currently considering a series of data privacy proposals. She's also the founder of the Dorothy Vaughn Tech Symposium, a briefing series that takes place on Capitol Hill. I've been to a few of those. Uh, her work has been covered in the MIT Tech Review. She's the co-author of a report on racial literacy and tech, and she speaks widely to various audiences on race, policy, and artificial intelligence. Welcome. I'm so glad to have Thank you. you. I'm excited to be here. <laughs> so I wanted to start by asking you um, about your personal story. Uh, what got you, I'm always fascinated in how people, particularly folks who work in tech, what got you interested in this work? And can you tell us a little bit of your story beyond what's in your bio? Yeah, so the in, I want to say September 2014, there was a picture that appeared in the popular press of President Obama wearing a code.org cap next to a little girl with braids, and they were by a computer. And up until that point, I had never thought about technology as being a place that I could be in, certainly not being a, not being a field that the president could be in, like prior to Obama, we hadn't really had uh, political leaders that had embraced science and technology. And that picture basically gave me a window into a future that could be mine. And I was really intrigued. And around that time, the nonprofit Black Girls Code had come to New York City, where I live, and they were cultivating uh, a, a series, they were cultivating their audience and looking for space. And Google had stepped forward as their community partner. And I had been a volunteer. And while I wasn't so married to the idea of children coding and that being the future, that just seemed a little bit too far from me, it brought me into a conversation about race and technology and what it meant to be black in technology. And because so few people were doing it in New York, that work ultimately led me to walk, working across um, opposite Google, discussing some of these issues. And as we spoke about diversity, it just made me wonder, is there more? And who, who's really making these decisions? That was the same year that Weapons of Math Destruction was released. And the rest is kind of history. You know, once I was introduced to this idea that the, te the, technical, the um, technical architecture of products could hold these social meanings, whether it be that they are racist or sexist or transphobic, through the inputs that they have, that was when I really started to think, well, we need guidelines and policies around that. And really the final piece, the thing that really got me to activate my relationship with Congresswoman Clark, which was a very, very long-term relationship. I live in her district. I um, We went to the same church at one point. I'd oh, helped wow. him. Yeah, this is really somebody that I know intimately. Um, we, you know, I'd helped on a couple of campaigns. She had mentored me at one point. 
this is when I started to really think about not just the racial bias in the architecture, but how were these decision-making systems facilitating communication among people that would hurt people like me, black people, poor people, and extremism and the rise of extremism then became a conversation and data and society and my association with them followed soon afterwards. So I always describe my journey as being like Hansel and Gretel following these breadcrumbs uh, towards something that I, I didn't know what it would be and I didn't necessarily know my place. And the combination of having a background in government and politics, specifically in policy, mm -hmm. having curiosity and an interest to learn about technologies, not just how they're built, but how they use and how they shape our social uh, connections. And then developing and striking up this unlikely friendship with Kathy O'Neill after she wrote the book. She was doing lots of book signings in New York City where we both live and really learning from her what where the exposures were has led me now into this AI policy governance governance space. Um, so Congresswoman Clark is, I think, one of our most helpful allies on the tech space. I try to watch as many of the hearings as possible. Um, right. One I remember from her in particular was when Mark Zuckerberg actually testified on the Hill. Um, you know, most of the questions that he got in the Senate and the House were, were frankly abysmal. Um, but right. she asked specifically if a more inclusive and diverse workforce might have caught Russian interference earlier in 2016. Um, and Zuckerberg at the time said that it wouldn't. Um, but I, I was just, I feel like she was so ahead of the curve on so many of these issues that we're discussing now. Can you talk to us a little bit about the process of helping a member of Congress who has a million demands on her time, a million issues that she needs to on top about, be on top of, understand everything that she needs to know about how technology affects her constituents' lives? Yeah, so the first thing that any member of Congress is really looking for is somebody that they can trust. And the thing that was very, that is very unique about our relationship is we've known each other a long time and we've been very consistent, but I'm not in her inner circle. So I, we only, she only gets to see me as an expert and I only interact with her in that way. And that becomes very helpful because as you can imagine, being the vice chair of the House Energy and Commerce Committee, she has standing appointments with every single lobbyist, right. every single person from civil society, every single person that shows up on the Hill and says that they're an expert, but no background. And I would just look at stories in our local paper here in Brooklyn and then connect them to technology. So, uh, and that really gives her the buy-in from a constituent perspective. So one of the things that has come up recently in her district are is um, a landlord wanting to replace keys with facial recognition technology. Oh, yeah. That's actually in her district. And so because that happened and because it was something that was closely associated with her, it was then really easy to download not just why this is a really bad idea because facial recognition technologies are not going to recognize anyone in that all black building. But it, I could also speak about the privacy exposures and the over surveillance of that particular area. And so she could then write the appropriate letters to the state, 
go and get the police data. She could use that to see how many cameras, how heavily policed, and then make this much more robust case. And that was the same for algorithms. She was uh, really frustrated with the Zuckerberg uh, response. And she was really interested to see where, where and if this, this bias showed up in other places. Right. So myself and Joan Donovan and you were there and others. Um, and I really credit you and thank you for showing up because the more people show up to those hearings, the more important she thinks it is. So to see a packed room, if you remember in that hearing, both in the presentation presentation that we had from Joan and some of the legal scholars, we also had really smart questions. Yeah. And those yeah. questions become vital because it lets her see that other people are watching. The same with the deep fakes hearing, because her, her other interest, she sits on the she's the head of the minority communications caucus. And they're really interested in the spread of online white supremacy mm-hmm. because um, because of it's not regulated like TV or radio, but the tech, you know, platform companies are operating like TV or radio in the sense that they disseminate this content. And how do we stop this spread of white supremacist content? But what I really appreciated then, and you actually asked, how much of a problem are deep fakes really? Mm. And that brought us into quite a technical response about the fact that we cannot do side by side. Um, we can't do side by side kind of um, samples of them because it changes the actual architecture. So once that false video is out, if you have a, a you know nefarious bad actor that wants to frame you in this way, it's actually an incredibly powerful tool for disinformation. So I would say for me, it has been the combination of finding the local angle, bringing that angle to her attention, letting her then know how that attaches to this technology narrative, because that's what we're trying to do with each of these bills, is build this narrative that this sector cannot regulate itself. And then, Really, um, I leave it to her and her team to decide what action to take forward. And if and when they want to leverage the expertise that I have from the research community, mm-hmm. that's fine. But I try, to, um, I try to make it very clear that these are her bills. The, you know, she drives the legislative process. I can just create a rich uh, environment for her to know the issues. I think the point you make about constituents and bringing it home to her constituents is so important. Um, I think this is one thing tech journalists miss all the time when they watch the hearings is that a lot of the questions that these uh, representatives are asking, they come from their districts, or if they're not particularly informed, it's because they're not hearing it from their districts. Um, now, I, for a lot of my readers uh, who are activists, they're very comfortable calling their members of Congress about most issues. But what I hear again and again is when it comes to advocacy on tech issues, uh, they're not sure what the best course of action is. They're not sure what to complain about. Uh, they're not sure what to ask questions in. Um, is there any potential uh, uh, pending legislation or issues that you would like to highlight uh, that perhaps people listening here who are concerned about some of these technology issues might approach their member of Congress about? 
I think that this discussion, which is now becoming a national discussion around audio video, audio visual manipulation, is one that all members of Congress need to hear about. Just because that Nancy Pelosi video, where there's a video of Nancy Pelosi where she appears drunk, yeah. it's a doctored video. Facebook admit that it's doctored, but they're refusing to take it down really highlights how we cannot allow platform companies to dictate our broadcast standards um, on social media because this, it's not narrowcast anymore. This is going out to 2 billion people potentially across the world. And so I would like to see activists really tell either their own stories about times that they have been misrepresented online and what that's done to their lives, or point to stories like that, or the Jim Acosta tape, mm. where it was slowed down to make it look like he was more aggressive than he actually had been, or the deep fake video it, that got onto a, a Fox affiliate in Seattle, yeah. which was actually mocking the president. I would argue that it doesn't matter what side of the political spectrum you fall on, mocking somebody and misrepresenting them through audiovisual manipulation isn't relevant in an evening newscast. And I think that once, once Congress know that this isn't just about Russia and it's not just about Mueller and know that it's about real lives and real people being harmed, that, that's going to be an effective lever for action. I think it's going to be so interesting if some of these Republican members change their tune when, you know, the first deep fake about of Ted Cruz comes out or 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 Donald Trump. Um, I mean, that's the other thing we talk about members going back to their districts, but also, you know, worked worked with elected officials for many years when it when it comes back to them. Uh, they're they're also quite interested. Oh, my goodness. And, and the thing that I will say in in support of my um, Republican colleagues is Marco Rubio actually gave a speech about deep fakes to the Heritage Foundation in 2017. Mm. And then, uh, Ben Sass, who's a Republican, entered a bill on deep fakes in December 2018. The difference between the Republican and the Democratic response is Republicans are all about national security and the mm. Republic. And Democrats are like, oh, my God, this could hurt women. You know, so like those are <laughs> those are the, the two different responses. But this is actually an issue that I don't want to start and end at deep fakes. I actually would like to use it to have a much more rich conversation about disinformation and, and what we need to do to respond to that. Well, let's talk a little bit, um, you know, because I know a lot of your work is bipartisan and I'm, you know, a firm believer that to get the change that we want, it's going to have to be bipartisan. But there's so much political theater around big tech outrage. And you can't deny that a lot of that political theater is partisan. And I feel like right. it creates so much confusion around some of these issues, both for members and for the public. Uh, talk to me a little bit about how that political theater makes your job harder and how you work around it. So it, it makes my job harder because there is the tendency to, for me to be called an activist. So the reason that, and there's nothing wrong with activism, but in the context of the Hill and in the context of um, being a, a policy advisor, that's actually an insult 
that they're they're you know yeah this the assumption is you don't really know what you're talking about you're just here on the steps screaming and one of the things that has happened are there certain offices that I just do not feel comfortable going into mm-hmm. and it's because those members are so in love with the idea that tech will save us that hearing my voice and it, it, it's like heresy you know they they literally march me out of my office and the reason that I started the Dorothy Vaughn tech symposium briefing series was I was just getting so annoyed at all of these briefings that were being mm-hmm. held by Samsung and Google and Facebook and Amazon and it made it very clear to me that for me performatively to have a space in the DC conversation I too would have to get into what I call, you know, the the briefings musical chairs. And because that would then sure. start to make me legible. The difference with my briefings, I would I would argue though, is that I'm bringing global level experts. And the audience that I'm cultivating are actually the most informed people on the hill on these issues. And my hope is that they can then encourage some of the people that really do see me as, you know, they might as well, you know, they they see me as this like screaming, um, you know, activist. Uh, We'll we'll say, actually, if you went, not only are they informative, but there's a very robust discussion about how this implicates us all. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I feel like a lot of um, healthy pushback, too. I mean, it's a, there's always good debate at the briefings of yours that I've been to, uh, which mm-hmm. I think is helpful for, for members and their staff. So I want to switch gears a little bit and dig into artificial intelligence uh, specifically. Uh, you gave right. a talk at Data and Society last week, which I, I listened to yesterday morning. Um, what, what do you think is important for folks to know about artificial intelligence and the potential impact it's going to have on their lives in the near future? I think I I want people to realize that it's now, it's actually not the future, that there is an estimation by McKinsey that this is going to add 3.5 to $5.8 trillion to the global economy. And the real discussion around that, at least in Congress, is how do we capture the value? It's not how do we save the people, how do we, it's how do we capture the value. And so one of the things that happened at the end of 2017 was the AI Futures Act was entered, not as a legislative vehicle, but more of like a messaging bill, something to let people know what to expect. And the four priority areas laid out for Congress were creation of an enabling business environment, which I translated to people coming in and trashing tech companies are not going to have any leverage. Yeah. Future of work, so that people should expect the way we work and how we work and the skills that we'll need to change, but it's not going to be robots are taking over your lives. It's going to be people with high level thinking skills and cognitive skills will work with technology and those people who structurally are not given access to high-level education will probably be unemployed. So that's going to cut on racial and class lines. 
the, uh, privacy was a priority. So the, expect lots of bills around uh, consumer privacy and our own privacy in space. And then the fourth thing was bias. So even though the first one is you know, business, there is this willingness within the act to really engage in what I would call civil rights, gender rights, um, you know, personhood rights. But the fear I have is using the word bias is so vague that yeah. we're going to get caught up into the ethics um, soup, right? And uh, nobody really is going to know what that means and it can get watered down. Now, this same report also laid out the one, the McKinsey, that AI is going to be used across 19 industry sectors. So the idea that the only time that we interact with artificial intelligence systems is when we're performing a computational task is false. It's um, AI systems are going to decide everything from how we travel to um, the ads we see online, to how our, how our houses operate, smart houses, to criminal just decisions in the criminal justice system, to um, how blind people can read, right? So every part of your life is gonna be impacted by these algorithmic driven systems. Well, actually, you had a stat in um, an article I read of yours recently, and it said Facebook has 146 people on its AI research team, um, but not one is black. Uh, right. And can you talk to me about the potential impact of leaving voices of color, particularly black voices, out of AI research and development at, at Facebook and, and other companies? I think it's really um, an oversight because one of the things that we've seen, for example, is leaving out women's voices in the development of um, automated vehicles has meant that those cars are optimized for men to drive. Oh, cool. It was, it was literally because there were no women in the space to conduct that testing. So if we extrapolate that if you are not and the if you're not involved in the research and the development, the unique needs of your community are not going to be addressed, then we are going to see police predictive algorithms built using historical crime data that potentially isn't accurate. Whereas if you have a black voice in the room that says we have a history of, of false arrest or false imprisonment, so before we use that data, let's really look through the data and how it originated and make sure that it's accurate, then that data is just going to be used because from an engineering perspective, you have inputs that lead to a desired output. You actually extrapolate all the other things that happen in the middle. So that means you'll say something like race, that's not a scientific category. We're not going to consider that. Class, that's not scientific. We're not going to consider it. And you end up pulling out all of the things that make us human. Whereas if you have black people who are not just there for the sake of being black, but also contributing to the team with, with new skills, I'm a big person that's, that thinks that social scientists should work alongside software engineers in the, at the development stage so that we can think, so that we're not extrapolating uh, society out of design. 
then you are going to be able to have richer conversations, but it cannot just be one black person. Right. Because if it's just one black person, they're just going to keep their mouths shut, try and keep the paycheck coming in and then go bitch about their colleagues at home. You know, they're, 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 you need a critical mass and then you need a culture that allows for that productive pushback. I think this is especially relevant when we think about, um, especially Facebook, but other tech companies tout AI as a solution to removing a lot of the extremist content, conspiracies, and misinformation. And we come back to Congresswoman Clark um, asking Mark Zuckerberg about this. Uh, I don't know that he would give the same answer today, a year later. I hope he wouldn't give uh, the same answer a year later. Um, but can you talk a little specifically about some of the worries with artificial intelligence and, and misinformation, if it's all white and male voices uh, making these decisions? I think the issue that we have with all male white voices trying to solve a tech problem with a tech solution is admitting that it's a problem because there, there, there appears to be, I've just been a co-author on a report um, around racial literacy and technology in that, in that process, we spent eight months speaking to between 15 and 20 people within large tech firms in Silicon Valley to find out what they thought about race. And one of the things that we found were people really seemed to think that they were so liberal and they knew so much about race. But as we asked more deep and probing questions, we realized that they, they had overestimated the, their ability to critically analyze how this impacted their work. I think the same is of extremism. I think that most of the people who are involved in this are so much like the white men that create these technologies that they're almost too close to yeah. realize that, you know, phrases like white on white crime really speak to and are coded by extremists. Whereas some of the engineers, these people that thought that they were like, you know, um, these people thought that they were basically W.E.B. Du Bois. And then we found out that they, you know, they, they'd never heard of slavery. You know, that, that's the kind of mismatch. I think a similar thing could happen, whereas having teams that can help manage some of that um, cognitive dissidence and some of the social stress that comes with uh, discovering that these people are literally just like me can help create the type of distance needed to create these solutions. And since these are social problems, my argument as a social scientist, as somebody who's a sociologist, I would argue that you need a social solution. And how, resp um, how responsive are tech companies to the racial literacy report and the idea that they need to learn and adopt it? Um, any particular good or bad actors that you want to call out? Um, I cannot, it's still ongoing. Fair. So I cannot call out good or bad actors. Uh, the, people that we, the people that we interviewed self-selected. And yeah. so I, they're really good actors. I really appreciated um, their participation. What we found, the idea, though, that they could become much more social justice focused and racial justice focused um, 
through developing a set of skills, a literacy in the same way we would develop the skill to read or the skill to write, I think was really well, um, it was really acknowledged. Uh, the, the idea that they would need to learn what what it is to live in a multicultural society, we got some pushback on because people assumed that, you know, they would say dumb stuff like, I live in New York, I get it. And it's like, um, your address doesn't mean that you understand the plight of, you know, Muslim New Yorkers. It just right. means that, that, that you live there. And so I do think that there's more work that needs to be done um, one of the things that I really appreciated about you before we started speaking is that you actually asked how to say my name. The type of people that we were speaking to would just assume whatever came out of their mouth were accurate. And if I were to correct them, that would be seen as me attacking them. So there was like this defensiveness and fragility. Yeah. The, the next phase is trying to figure out action plans to address this. And I think this is actually where we're going to get the pushback because there's, it's cool to take a survey. I think uh, data and society have a privileged position right now because, you know, they're doing these fun reports and people like them, but I don't know that they expected to have to actually do some work. And, um, I'll be interested to see how that goes because I'm not sure how performative the initial enthusiasm was. And, mm. you know, when, when we reported back some findings, which were things like white people have to become comfortable to talk about race because white people created many of these racial problems. Yeah. <laughs> that, I mean, people were like, oh, I like your hair. Oh, I have to go. Oh, I voted for Obama. And it's like, no, I don't mean you. I just mean generally, structurally, if we look at how these structures were created, this is what the founding fathers did. And these were the reasons that they did that. So systemic issues rather than individual. Yeah. Right, right. And and really, and you know this because you work with policymakers, on the Hill, I'm always thinking in aggregate. I try to tell a personal story to enter into the issue, but the questions I'm always asked are, how does this impact blank women, black people? It's never Bob in Milano Park at this desk is a racist. Like that's not, so, but, but some education needs to take place there. Well, I look forward to hearing more about those conversations and, and uh, even just what icebreakers and, and what methods you're able to use to really dive in because it's, it's, it's tough. It's necessary, but it's right. tough. And I think, you know, for folks in tech in particular, I think they've so long enjoyed the reputation that they are saving the world and making the world a better place. And I think it's, 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 been, a it's been a tough reckoning. So uh, hopefully uh, beyond the reports, you'll be able to keep having an impact because I, th I think the concept of racial literacy is going to be so important moving forward when we're talking about AI, when we're talking about you know, so many things in our future. Um, just one last uh, question that I wanted to make sure we got to. Um, thinking about human bias, uh, one of the ways that I've, we, areas where we've really seen it is in this white nationalist domestic terrorism uh, in tech yeah. and law enforcement. Um, and, and to be frank, it's a bias that's allowed a, a large portion of white America to ignore the problem for so long mm -hmm. and pretend it doesn't exist. 
And I worry that AI, particularly when we think about how law enforcement will use AI, is only going to make the problem worse. Um, as Congress is finally starting to focus on the issue of domestic terrorism, um, do you think they're thinking through this issue of, of bias and artificial intelligence as it pertains to domestic terrorism? Not generally, not in aggregate. And I actually um, last week was in D.C. with Jesse Daniels, mm -hmm. who's a, a U.S.-based sociologist and her she has a 25-year body of work looking at um, white extremism and how it migrated online. And one of the things that she said, and she's the co-author on the report on racial literacy, I believe that we're going to have to have a racial literacy in policy conversation too, just because one of our findings from the report is you have to name what it is. And it feels like only in the last month are people speaking about white extremism and domestic terrorism. And in that conversation, there also has to be this language around anti-blackness and how all of this, um, that's one of the things that feeds it, that and anti-Muslim, you know, Islamophobia. Those are like the two major drivers, um, even though I would argue now anti-Semitism is, is, is featuring more. And that, I think, is going to be a really interesting conversation because that racial literacy, that literacy of what it is to be impacted as a Muslim, as a black person, as a Jew, and targeted by these groups, isn't something that's widely known or understood. And I really, um, I really hope this is a place that advocates, I think, can also uh, get on board because I think that once they realize that this isn't just a black white problem which I think we're all very comfortable with we're all you know maybe they did something maybe they're super predators maybe that we have lots of language right we, we don't necessarily particularly for anti-semitism we don't necessarily have that and this is a this is a heavily impacted group so I know starting with Clark, because she's always my linchpin, but trying to think about the Congressional Black Caucus further. How do we create these, um, th these seats of understanding and solidarity, not just with impacted groups, but with liberal, um, anti-fascist and, um, and anti-racist white people who have the social and political currency to make this an issue? And one of the things that I always say was the one person that died in Charleston was a white woman. Yeah. And I don't think that that should be forgotten. I don't think, um, you know, I am not of the opinion that there were good people on both sides. That's not the position I would take. But I am of the opinion that we underuse white allies, white anti-racist allies in these spaces. And they need to be part of that conversation. Great. Um, so I'm always supposed to end on a hopeful note, uh, which can be hard. <laughs> I know uh, it can be hard given the guests uh, that I interview and the, the dark, dark topics that we, we cover. Um, but is there anything in your work that makes you hopeful about the future? Uh, as I'm coming to DC, I'm beginning to cultivate a community of 
people who I know when I leave are going to ask those questions, who I know um, when I leave are going to write letters, who I know that when they're in their own circles are going to carry on these conversations. So I really hope that um, the Dorothy Vaughn Tech Symposiums become a place where the best and the brightest um, are coming and we're, have, we're really thinking about these issues. And I'm really happy about the way Republicans have, have really very early kind of decided we're going to have to do something about technology mm. and make sure that it doesn't, um, that, that, you know, that it really doesn't screw us in the end. And that makes me hopeful because currently our White House is so anti-science that I don't see that being a conversation that's going to be driven there. But then our previous White House, the Obama administration, were so pro-industry that they just allowed all manner of tomfoolery to go on, become normalized, um, that a lot of the mythology around tech companies comes directly from the Obama era. And so I'm hoping that this group that's kind of being cultivated and finding each other in DC can also, as we go into 2020, have a voice with whoever, you know, you know, there are 9,000 candidates on the democratic side whenever we get one, I'm hoping that those people can become advisors for that campaign around how to create that kind of balanced approach where government is, is protecting the common good, tech industries are, the tech industry are operating like businesses and are, we have, we know what that means. And then we as a um, educated populace are advocating within our, you know, own interests. Thank you. Uh, I, it's always good. You, everybody always finds hope, which is helpful. <laughs> um, so, uh, Mutali, I want to thank you so much. Uh, for our listeners, again, it's, it's Mutali and Conde. Uh, she, you can find her at Data and Society. Uh, she has a lot of published materials on the website. I would especially encourage listeners to listen to her most recent talk, which I know is linked on the site. Um, and are you on Twitter? I am, and um, it's my full name, but oh. the easiest way to get my Twitter handle is to find me on the Data and Society website, and then it's right on there, and you can click. Okay, well, check her out on Data and Society and, and follow her on Twitter. Uh, I want to just thank all, all of uh, our, our readers, and particularly our Control Art Alt... Ugh, I can't even say my own newsletter today. Um, particularly our Control Alt Write Delete Patreon members. Uh, thank you for the support of the newsletter and for your support of Hope Not Hate. And I will talk to you again soon. <laughs>